invite you to remain standing out of celebration for God and His life-giving Word and grab your Bible if you have one and turn to the book of Acts chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of the chairback Bibles that should be in front of you and turn to page 914. It's our normal practice here at Redeemer just to walk through books of the Bible, Old and New Testament, verse by verse. Since December, we've been walking slowly but surely through the Gospel of Luke. And this morning, we're going to take a break from that study to give our attention to Luke's second volume of biblical history as we want to notice what it has to tell us about the pattern of healthy ministry. Uh, Those of you who have been members here at Redeemer for a while, I'm sure are aware that February is Nominations Month here in our congregation as you have a chance to nominate men to serve as a deacon or ruling elder in the church. And so we thought it'd be wise to take a break from our study in Luke's Gospel to just consider what the Bible has to tell us, particularly this passage in Acts 6, what it has to tell us about healthy ministry, healthy ministers, healthy leaders, and faithful servants in the church. So I hope it will encourage us onto that end this morning. And we just want to look at the first seven verses of Acts chapter 6. So let me begin our time together by reading the text, asking, asking then after for God to bless our study, and then we will begin. So let us hear now as God speaks to us through His Word. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number... A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve apostles summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching of the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And Redeemer Church, what do we know about God's Word? The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the Word of the Lord stands forever. Let us pray together. Father, we do thank You that Your Word is living, it is active. We pray this morning that You would send it out in our midst. And we trust that it will accomplish the purpose for which you send it. Lord, we pray that purpose would be our salvation, our sanctification, that you would save sinners in here this morning, that you would sanctify your saints, that your spirit would open our eyes to behold wondrous things from your word. So let us hear with eager expectancy for you to move and work among us. Help me to preach as your word says I must, with boldness with clarity and faithfulness as a dying man unto dying people. And we do pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Since the late 1970s, 
the Christian publishing industry has churned forth no small number of titles related to church growth. Vast volumes have come into the church directing us how indeed we might pursue growth in our local churches. And some of the most popular answers throughout the decades have said that a church needs to adopt business principles and practices to increase its efficiency and effectiveness, that we need a a full-orbed five-year, ten-year, twenty-year vision lest the people perish in our midst. Other answers have said we need to listen to the Spirit, we need to center our life on community groups, we need to adopt marketing principles, we need to meet people's expectations and felt needs. And even earlier this week, I pulled up the category of church growth on Amazon.com and discovered, according to these titles, that we need a church that's transformative, confident, growing, free, highly effective, purpose-driven, seeker-sensitive, in touch with history, church-oriented, multi-site, relevant, relational, and focused on high-impact worship. However painful that may be, even to some of us. And it's a necessary question we ought to always consider as we think of our life together. What is necessary for church growth? What is necessary in the life of a local congregation if it's going to grow as the Bible seems to expect it to grow? So children, I want you to think about this carefully this morning Because I do pray for all of you that you will grow up to be faithful, loving servants of the church. And what you need to know is few things are as exciting as being a part of a growing church that's faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. But how might you pray for that church that you eventually join to grow? How might we even think of this church at Redeemer Presbyterian Church? How might we be pursuing church growth in our midst. And maybe you noticed in our scripture reading a second ago that our passage is indeed about a growing church. If you look down again at verse 1 and 7 of Acts chapter 6, you'll see that our text is bookended by the word increasing and increase. This is a passage that has much to tell us about the nature of true church growth. And even Luke's second volume of biblical history, the continuing acts of the apostles, actually has much to tell us also about proper, good, faithful church growth. But some of the methods that God uses might tend to surprise us. It's often through suffering, through martyrdom, through courageous preaching, unwavering, unswerving dependence on the Spirit that God tends to grow His church. And so the text that we want to look at this morning is one of the most famous passages in all the Bible about gospel ministry. Uh, Throughout my life, I've heard dozens upon dozens, if not hundreds of sermons uh, from this passage on everything from how to deal with complaints in the church to how to deal with criticism in the church, to the nature of gospel ministry, what kind of qualifications are we looking for in leaders. And there's even a cottage industry in biblical studies on this passage as to whether or not it represents the first installation of a diaconate in the Christian church. And my intent this morning is not to answer that age-old question as much as it is I want us to notice together what is clearly the pattern of healthy apostolic ministry in the life of an ordinary local church 
And I think we're going to be able to see how this pattern of apostolic ministry was replicated in the post-apostolic age through the ministry of elders and deacons. So the simple truth that I want us to see this morning is how healthy church structure aids the advance of the gospel. You might say it a different way. Healthy, faithful church leaders are used by God to propel forward the good news of Jesus Christ. And so to help us see that, what I want to just bring out from this passage, and I hope we'll see it very simply yet clearly, are five truths about a gospel-advancing ministry. There are certainly other ones that we could point to in the New Testament, but at least from these seven verses, five simple truths about gospel-advancing ministry. The first of which is a gospel-advancing ministry addresses common threats. A gospel-advancing ministry addresses common threats. It's, it's been common throughout the last few decades for scholars and commentators on this passage to note how it fits into the larger narrative of Acts, and we get something in the early chapters of Acts as like a secret peek into Satan's playbook against the church. Common tactics and threats he uses to destroy the church. So if you know how Acts has been moving up until this point in chapter 6, what you would have seen in chapters 4 and 5 particularly is that a favored tactic of our enemy is persecution. In those chapters we saw various apostles jailed and beaten for their preaching of Jesus Christ. Then even at the start of chapter 5, we see a second favored tactic, which is corruption. You have this moral hypocrisy of two individuals named Ananias and Sapphira that are threatening to tear apart the church. And then in our text, we're going to see a few other common threats that come against an ordinary church. And notice what we see according to verse 1 as Luke sets the scene of our passage. He says, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number." Now remember where we are in the timeline of the Bible. We're not very long after Jesus has ascended into heaven. The Spirit has fallen in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. The church is growing rapidly. Thousands are being added to the church. But so often it can be true that a growing church becomes a complaining church. For notice how verse 1 continues. We're told a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So think of the scene here in the early church. You have the Hellenists who were Greek-speaking Jewish believers, the Hebrews who were Aramaic-speaking Jewish believers, all in the same church, having difficulty relating to one another, particularly in this matter of the daily distribution. We know that the early church was very generous. They held all things in common. So this allowed the apostles, this allowed the early church to give food, to give money, to give needs or to meet the needs of various poor members in the church or widows in the church. And we find out that the Greek-speaking widows aren't getting the same amount of food as the Aramaic-speaking widows. And so a complaint arose. A program in the church wasn't working to the people's delight and desire. And Luke doesn't tell us anymore about why exactly this has happened. We can speculate for a long time on what exactly was the nature of this decision, uh, dissension and division. But the point we need to see is that these are common threats against 
the church. Dissension that tends to lead to division. I've had several friends in pastoral ministry or even friends who are small business owners that would often do something called a SWOT assessment of their organization or their institution. Maybe you've heard of this before, S-W-O-T. You kind of analyze your institution and think of its strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. And surely if you did that of the early church at this moment, they would have spoken of the threats of dissension and division. But our text is actually interested most acutely in another threat. Notice what happens in verse 2. We're told the twelve apostles summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Do you see the threat that's going to happen here or is threatening to happen here? Not just that the dissension is going to lead to division between the Hellenists and the Hebrews, but that the apostles are going to be distracted from the ministry that they have been commissioned to by the Lord Jesus Christ. And you don't want to see the apostles as minimizing the care of the widows in the congregation. Uh, We're getting ready to see they, they so value that ministry, they basically create an office to take care of it. But they're saying is we have been specifically commissioned to bring the spiritual food of Christ's gospel to the nations. And if we spend all of our time ministering probably to hundreds of widows throughout Jerusalem, we're no longer going to be able to minister the gospel. This will distract us from our spiritual mission. So these are common threats, are they not, in every local congregation? Dissension, division, Distraction from the biblical mission, which Satan intends to use to bring our destruction. So a healthy, gospel-advancing ministry recognizes these favored schemes of Satan. And the question before us is, not only do we recognize them, but do we lovingly and faithfully address them so that they do not bring, not just a threat to the church, but a threat to fruition in the church. And the second thing I want you to see about a gospel advancing ministry in our text is that a gospel advancing ministry appoints qualified officers. Notice the beginning of verse 3. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit, and of wisdom. So I tend to think that this is in every way a prototype of the diaconate that would soon come to mark post-apostolic church ministry in the first and second centuries. And what are the earliest deacons said to have? Or at least, what must the earliest deacons have according to the apostles? They must have a reputation of being men of spiritual maturity and biblical sensibility. Quite simple. Men who are known for their wisdom. Men who are known for their fullness of the Spirit. So, of course, as we think as a congregation over the next few weeks of of nominating men to the office of deacon, what kind of man does God desire? Well, from our text, it's quite clear, it's quite simple. Good reputation, fullness of the Spirit, wisdom. We even get other qualifications. You might go home and read them later on today from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8 through 13, what God desires of his servants. 
And a simple uh, principle, a conviction we might call it, about healthy church ministry that should guide us, and you might want to write it down, is the simple truth that I, I believe is all over the Bible and just sensible at the same time. A church's health rarely, if ever, exceeds the health of its leaders. A church's health rarely, if ever, exceeds the health of its leaders. God has given two offices in the church to promote its health. And what he means for us and what he intends for us is that those offices will not merely be filled with men who meet the qualifications of Scripture, but if we just kind of bring it all together, men who serve, who shepherd, who are absorbed with adoring the Lord Jesus Christ. There's this soul-gripping love of Christ within their life that they so lead and serve the church unto that same kind of love and delight in Jesus. And what, what a challenge. I hope it is even for those of us that are serving on the session or on the diaconate that God desires men to serve and shepherd after the pattern of Jesus with this all-consuming delight and affection for him. It's so true, isn't it, that often the world and often Satan want us when we need or we're thinking about church growth, it wants us to think that we need new and better methods when in reality the Bible is just after us appointing faithful, godly men to the ministry that the Spirit works through. So a gospel advancing ministry is going to recognize and address common threats. It's going to appoint qualified officers. And then thirdly, it's going to cherish unity and mercy. Cherish unity and mercy. Kids, can you think back to one of your favorite birthday presents you've ever received? Maybe it was 10 years ago if you're old enough. Maybe it was last year at your birthday. I still think the best birthday present I ever received when I was about 11 years old was a brand new mountain bike. It was the first bike I had ever received from my parents. I can still picture its bright blue and red colors. I can think of these strong handlebars and these rugged tires that just screamed for adventures that no 11-year-old ought to go on. But what really caught my attention were these large shock absorbers. I don't even think, frankly, I had a context for what shock absorbers were and did at this time. But it didn't take long to when I kind of got out on my normal bike riding paths to realize that the normal bumps and bangs along the way were actually quite smooth because of these shock absorbers. And there's a sense in which deacons in the church, these ministers of mercy and service, function like shock absorbers. That the normal spiritual bumps and bangs, good physical needs that are, or needs that must be addressed, the deacons come upon those needs and like spiritual shock absorbers, make sure the bump is not that great. That our ride and our life in Christ might be much smoother than it would be. Because of course what the apostles are not merely after is appointing men so that they can preach, but they're appointing men who can minister mercy and thereby restore church unity. This fracture between the Hellenists and Hebrews needed to be addressed. And so these seven men, full of the Spirit, of good reputation and wisdom, are sent and appointed by the apostles to bring unity back into the church through their mercy. So when we think about next month nominating men to serve as deacons and elders, let this be something that goes through your mind. 
Are these men that tend to model mercy? Are these men that tend to promote unity in the church? That they represent this ideal we have all throughout the Bible. Psalm 133 verse 1, how blessed and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. Or even we read earlier this morning from Ephesians chapter 4 verse 3, that we'd be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace. A gospel advancing ministry is going to cherish, it's going to prize, it's going to treasure unity and mercy. And the fourth truth I want you to see this morning is that a gospel advancing church prioritizes prayer and preaching. Prioritizes prayer and preaching. Notice verse 4. The apostles say, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. You know, I do believe that the most necessary correlation of of this verse to post-apostolic New Covenant church ministry would be to teaching elders in the life of the church, these men like Pastor Belanger and myself that are uniquely commissioned and ordained to preach the gospel and minister the sacraments. But do we not know from the Bible that every elder must be a man of the word? 1 Timothy chapter 3 makes it clear he must be able to teach. Titus chapter 1 says he must be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and refute false teaching. How thankful we ought to be that God has given us ruling elders that are men of the word, that delight to grow in it, that delight to teach it. When we are thinking about elders serving the life of the church, think about men. Are they known for their delight in prayer, for their ability in handling in God's word? Even this word devote, it's a strong one. It, it speaks of giving attention with intense effort to something that can often be quite hard. I said, we're going to devote ourselves to prayer and preaching. I was 21 when I started in full-time ministry. And I think it was within two or three weeks. I was a student pastor at the time that I got asked for the first time a question I have been asked countless times ever since. Jordan, what exactly is it that you do? I told this earnest young student that was part of our student leadership team some sort of a long-winded, youthful, zealous apologetic for faithful pastoral ministry that I'm sure just sailed right over her head. But you know, the older I get, the more I'm content to say in response to such a question, which is a good one, I just try to pray and preach more and more each week. Because understand, there is something peculiarly powerful in churches devoted to prayer and preaching. The Bible makes it clear that that's true, and you don't have to be an expert in church history to know that any time awakening, revival, multiplication of God's gospel has come into the life of his church, that prayer and preaching always lie at the center of that movement. But we want to ask the question of why? Maybe you haven't answered this or asked and answered this before if you've come across this. Why is it exactly that God so obviously uses ministries that prioritize prayer and preaching? I am convinced that the answer is because No practices other than those so demonstrate faith in God. Because who's working 
when we pray? Who are we asking to move when we preach? God. Prayer and preaching give God the right platform on which he loves to work. To bring people to his Son that he might receive all the glory due his name. So of course, in in this age in which we live, this side of the cross and this side of Jesus' coming, the Bible tells us it's an age in which we live not by sight, but by faith. We're also told in the New Testament that anything does not proceed by faith is sin and doesn't please the Lord. Yet prayer and preaching bring God pleasure. So centering our life on those things surely will place us in the appropriate place, prioritizing what we're supposed to emphasize. And I do even think the order is significant. They say prayer first, preaching second. It's as though prayer is one half of our ministry and it gives the second half preaching all of its life and power. Even an old preacher named Samuel Chadwick once said, Satan dreads nothing but prayer. His concern is to keep the saints from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, he mocks our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. What a joy. An increasing delight it would be to appoint men to be a church that sends Satan always a trembling as we have our priorities right. So we dare not think, though, as it can often be the case, depending on your Christian tradition, that in this moment, the office of diaconate, the office of the elder, that the apostles have basically created a junior varsity and varsity team of ministers in the church. Because it's not that way. And it's so clear even in the Greek, because the verse, if you notice verse 2, the very word that they use for serve, tables in verse 2, is the exact same word that they use in verse 4 of ministry of the word. What the church needs is a ministry of service and a ministry of the word. Men qualified for each office delighting to serve in the way that Christ has commissioned them because it's there that unity, joy, delight, peace flood into a church and Christ is exalted. So four principles so far. Truths we need to see about a gospel advancing ministry. It addresses common threats. It appoints qualified officers. It cherishes unity and mercy. It prioritizes prayer and preaching. And finally, a gospel advancing church multiplies from the word. Kids, do you know that multiplication tends to make numbers greater than addition, right? Two plus four is six, but two times four is eight, so on and so forth. And the mathematics of God's economy, notice, comes in verse seven, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. My friends, this is the kind of church growth we want. The word increasing, disciples multiplying, obedience to the faith maturing. You know, maybe you're in here this morning and and you're not a Christian, and you come across a passage like this and listen to a sermon on a passage like this and wonder, what does this text have to do with me? You know, I would encourage you that 
As you read God's word, one thing that we are reminded of from this passage is how the Bible always presents us as human beings. Those of us that are trying to follow Christ, we're not perfect. What you'll find over and over in the Bible is the Bible talks about the weaknesses, shortcomings, and failures of God's people. They can often succumb to Satan's threats. They can be prone to dissension and division. That if you come into a church, you come into a church full of imperfect people that are trying to love a perfect Savior and are empowered by His Spirit to do just that. But you might even see at the very end of verse 7 that this is precisely what He calls you to have. Obedience to the faith. The faith, the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ that He is the one who lived a perfect life in your place. Therefore died as your sinless substitute on the cross. Rose again three days later defeating sin Satan and death, and now by turning from your sin and trusting in Him, you will be one of the number, the uncountable number that Christ continues to bring to Himself through the preaching of the Word. So five truths for a gospel advancing ministry. Five truths that I hope lets us indeed confess and see that healthy church structure aids the advance of the gospel. God works through healthy leaders and faithful leadership bodies. You saw earlier in the service our sixth son. No, it's not our sixth son. I know how many kids and children I have. It's our sixth child and fifth son. He was born five or about four weeks ago. And so we're in the season, some of you might remember this or actually be there yourself, the season of Meals on Wheels as people come bringing us meals all the time. And so a good friend of ours, an old friend of ours, even from uh, when she was in in high school and I served as a student pastor, she brought us dinner on Monday night and she walked out of the house, of course, to go back home to uh, be with her family. And then uh, about a minute and a half later, we heard this knock on the door and she said, I broke my key in the ignition. I'm thinking, is such a thing possible? And sure enough, I go outside, and the metal blade had broken away from the plastic bow. But I I could get to the metal blade with a pair of pliers, so I ran inside to the garage and grabbed a pair of pliers and began to turn that key, thinking it would turn the engine over and she'd be able to make it home safely. But I turned the key, and it just wasn't working. You know, I had the sound of maybe the battery died at the same time, too. So I got my car out of the garage, jumper cables out, and began to try to jump the battery, thinking surely this was going to be the answer. But of course it was not. This car was almost 20 years old, and so it never dawned on me that 20 years ago you would have a transponder chip in the ignition key, but sure enough, I found out that 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 exactly is what it was. So I took the bow and the blade and went back into the garage and taped it all up as firm and as tight as I possibly could. Of course, I inserted that key and turned it, and sure enough, it worked. And have you ever realized how often, even as a church, We can try to advance the gospel, disconnected from healthy leadership, and yet wonder why it's not moving. Of course, we can apply that all over the place in our life together. Uh, What God desires is for his church to be faithful to his word, 
to be so consistent with what he calls us to be that this bow, if you will, of healthy church leadership is married to our gospel proclamation and then we find the engine of our church's life together beginning to hum, beginning to move, continually so, increasingly so. Unless we miss the fullness of Christ in our text, understand how it even reminds us that indeed at the center of our church's life together is to be nothing other than the Lord Jesus Christ. For he promises us in the Bible the outpouring of his spirit, a spirit that makes sure we're not ignorant to Satan's schemes and threats. We even know and can live confidently that our Lord Jesus Christ has disarmed the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, that he's overthrown them, and now we can live out of the victory he has already achieved. We even know from Ephesians 4, don't we, that it is ultimately Christ who pours out officers on his church. Out of the gifts of his grace, he gives to his church that they might grow into unity and maturity. How much does Jesus care about unity and mercy? Of course, he's our merciful Lord that in the garden we know he prayed for that unity to be true of us. John 17 tells us as much, that we would be one. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us he's taken enemies of God who used to be enemies of one another, has now reconciled us to God and one another in one body by his work. Why do we prioritize prayer and preaching? Because it's there that we speak with our Lord and he speaks to us. That we commune with the risen king through these means of grace. And who is it that ultimately is about multiplying his church from his word? It's of course the conquering king, Jesus Christ, who subdues his people to himself, who restrains and conquers all his and their enemies. So his final marching orders were what? Go therefore and make disciples, teaching them. And why are we confident that it will happen? Because he is with us, even until the end of the age. So I pray this would encourage us, that this even would be helpful for us as we continue to think about promoting and growing in our life together as we want to see the gospel go forth from these four walls and in our life as Christians of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you that you have given us Christ, that you have given us your word that is so clear on what kind of a church you desire us to be. Lord, we do confess that we often fall short, so often of that ideal, but we praise you that there is mercy and grace to cover our sin, to strengthen our shortcomings, to help us walk in faithfulness. So Lord, as we think about future leaders and officers in this church, I pray that we would think so with with biblical eyes, with faithful hearts, as we want to see the leadership continue to grow as you can call us to grow. Ultimately, that the gospel would go forth, that we would be a, a church that grows in the right ways. So Lord, we pray that you would do this for our good, and ultimately for your glory, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.